GameStop is coming out with a new game, Mortal Kombat, short-selling the hedge fund managers. Though it might be rated M. And the filibuster is back in the news, which has caused many Americans to wonder, uh, what's a filibuster? It's not just a Thanksgiving ritual for all dudes. Well, Mackenzie and I will unpack all of these issues, plus I will gloat about my Super Bowl picks in this week's debriefing of the law. Welcome to this week's edition of Debriefing the Law. I am Joel Oster. And I'm Mackenzie Smith. And we are here today to not necessarily debrief the law, but to gloat. Because last week, we tried for the first time doing our Super Bowl picks, our our football picks. And we went on the record as to who our teams were. And I kind of forgot who I picked. And so, Mackenzie, can can you remind me uh, what our picks were last week? I'm just curious. Do, do, Do you remember? Ha ha, yes. In a nutshell, you were right and I was wrong. Wait, I, I couldn't hear them, so there might be something <laughs> wrong. Let me up the volume here. Well, one more time. You were right and I was wrong. Oh my goodness, I, I love that. I'm going to earmark that. All right, so our our picks last week were the Chiefs versus the um, uh, oh my God, Buffalo Bills. And, and yes. you picked the Bills? I did. Oh my goodness, what were you thinking? Well, I picked the team whose outfits I like better. And who okay. I just like have a good feeling about it. There's no like strategy or like knowledge. Okay. All right. <laughs> behind my picks, so you know, I mean, if you put money on it, if listeners put money based on my picks, like that's on you guys. Like, yeah, yeah, exactly. I take no yeah. responsibility. No, we have, we have a disclaimer. Um, we don't even provide legal advice. Definitely not football advice. But um, and then the other game. Let's see, who are the Chiefs playing? Oh, oh Tampa Bay played Green Bay in the Battle of the Bay. And I believe I said you'd, you'd never bet against Brady because um, uh, I, I, that's just kind of the general rule. He just always comes out the winner. But, hey, next week we're going to have to make our Super Bowl picks. Are you ready? Actually, are you ready to make your Super Bowl picks? I'm ready. I'm ready. You're not going to be mean, happy with my pick, though. Oh, you're going to be wrong again? I'm so sorry. <laughs> How are you picking Tampa Bay uh, to uh, to win the Super Bowl? I just feel like, I mean, look, I think it's actually going to be, I did not like the prospect of a red team versus a red team. I just think aesthetically (laughs) it's not pleasing to me. But listen, okay, you have Tom Brady playing in his 10th Super Bowl at home, essentially, which I don't know how much that really matters this year because I don't even know what the spectator situation is. But I just feel like, you know, Mahomes has made clear that he can do it. He's going to have a long career. He's going right. to get more Super Bowl Super Bowl rings, I think. But I feel like in this particular situation, Brady is so comfortable in this position. It's like age over beauty. He knows what he's doing. He has the experience. He's not going to have the nerves. He just, I think he's got the calm, collected head on his shoulders to pull this off. And they're both great teams. Um, obviously, Kansas City is like a more established team right, in terms right. of the players. But, you know, I just, like you said, don't ever bet against Brady. Like, we'll, we'll just see. That is, uh, I am very, very uh, curious about that. I know I just said you never bet against Tom Brady, but obviously I'm going to have to here because I got to go with my hometown, the Kansas City Chiefs. Now, and obviously we'll unpack it more next week, but uh, here is my big deal with uh, Tampa Bay. I mean, yes, Tom Brady did a great job going to to Tampa. They changed the name of the town from, from Tampa to Tampa, just in honor of him. I, I get that, but here's the problem. He has never really played for a team that doesn't cheat. I'm so sorry, New England fans, but yes, his Super Bowls are tainted. You cannot claim 10 as Super Did you realize his very first Super Bowl he won? His coach, the McCheater, uh, Bill Belichick, uh, illegally and against the rules and against all that is known to be right in the mankind, uh, he recorded the first 14 plays of the St. Louis Rams. Now, you are not allowed to even look at the opposing team's plays and practice 
offices beforehand, but as the other team was doing their walkthrough, he sent his film crew in there and they recorded, and this is all a matter of public record. He absolutely did it. This is not my conjecture. He had the first 14 plays that the other team was going to play. So, of course, they had the right defense called up. They were cheating. And so I'm just worried about Tom Brady. Does he really know how to win a big game? Without cheating? I'm just not sure he does. Well, we'll see. I was actually at that Super Bowl in 2002. Um, No, no, no. Hold back up. What? I know. I was a freshman at Tulane, and it was in New Orleans, and it was actually the Sunday leading into, like, the week before Mardi Gras. Okay. And, yeah, I was in the city, and a friend of mine had tickets, and we went, and it was awesome, and it was actually, whoa, whoa. like, what? <laughs> I'm, I'm flabbergasted. How have I known you for as long as I've known you and did not know the most important thing about your life? I, well, <laughs> the funny part is, like, I just was so not into football at the time that, to oh, me, at the time, worse. it this wasn't even, worse. like, that big of a deal. Actually, the most exciting part of it for me at the time was it was the year, just a couple months after September 11th that we had okay. all lived through, and... The the Patriots won, and after right. the game, everyone went to the French Quarter, and you know it was right before Mardi Gras, so everyone was partying, and the streets were yeah. packed, and they did a flyby of like Bourbon Street with the okay. red, white, and blue colors, like of the um, tail exhaust, and it right. was just like a moment where it was symbolic because it was the Patriots, they were red, white, and blue, and we had all just lived through this horrific terrorist attack, and so uh, everyone had like a really positive feeling about the Patriots at the time because everyone felt very patriotic, and it was just a great <laughs> moment of togetherness and the feeling of community, and so now I guess the tune, you know, in retrospect, they <laughs> turns cheated. out they were cheating, so whatever, yes. but Yeah. I just listened to another uh, podcast, uh, or actually a TV show. I think it's Skip Bayless and Shannon Sharp on their show. They are talking about how, yeah, they did, Tom Brady did such a great job in that first Super Bowl. No, no, stop it. They they cheated. Of, of course, the Rams were going to be frustrated offensively when the other team has all of their plays, the first 14 plays. Of course, the game is going to start off well for them. Uh, but nonetheless, hey, I digress. Uh, we'll unpack this game more next week because I'm just sure Andy Reid is going to call me once my backup game plans. I am feverishly working right now on what the Chiefs game plan should be next week. But all right, so our it early picks. It should be part I, of the halftime show, I feel like. Like, how has no one called us yet to do a little like segment during halftime? I mean, we're way better than Lady Gaga. (laughs) Hey, do you you have musical talent? I mean, I play, I'm a classically trained pianist. No one wants to hear me play Beethoven. No, (laughs) see, that's it. Let's do it. They have not done, they have not had a classical pianist play Beethoven. My friend (laughs) Scott uh, plays the harp, so he can play the harp. You can play classical pianist, and I can play the radio, I guess. I don't know. But nonetheless, (laughs) we'll, um, yeah, it would be different. You mentioned home field advantage. So quickly, I got to comment on that because I think the NFL is pulling a fast one. Now, I don't want to be a, naysayer here, but the NFL has offered up, I think, 7,000, 8,000 free tickets to um, not, to the COVID medical personnel. Did you hear about that? I didn't, but that's what's wrong with that? I like yeah, that. Yeah, nothing, nothing is wrong with that. That's all good. I love it. But do you think they're coming from Kansas City? No, they're coming from the local area there in Tampa Bay. So they're stacking the home court advantage in favor of their favorite son, Tom Brady. So, hey, I'm saying none of it. Come to Kansas City, get the medical workers here, fly them out there, give them free tickets so we can have equal home field advantage. And I don't know, maybe, maybe they have changed their policy. But I, I did hear that they are getting most of these workers from the local area there. So that might tilt the home field advantage in favor of Tampa Bay, but I, I got to say the Chiefs, we've already beat them in uh, in their home field this year once. We are very good on the road, and so I, it, it's going to be an, an exciting game. A three-point, Chiefs are a three-point favorite, so I'm, I'm going to pick the Chiefs. I think it's gonna, they're actually going to win going away, and I'll explain why next week, but and you're going to pick um, uh, Tampa? You, you want the three points? 
I, I yeah, I'm gonna pick Tampa, but your rationale for picking Kansas City is the same as my ten year old stepson's, and like he really knows what he's talking about when it comes to football. So I think you guys are probably you know gonna be proven right here. But I'm gonna stick he's with brilliant. my pick. Yeah, he he, he actually he, is brilliant. He is brilliant. I tell you, you got you got to keep her on your hands there. Get him in the best schools possible. But I'm um, all right. Well, let's move on. That obviously that's that has my attention. But I also found time this week to watch the, the legal news and the legal landscape. And a lot happened this last week. So let's just unpack these various issues that came that occurred this last week and let's give them our comedian of law take and spin on them. GameStop was in the news. Now, when I heard that, I, I mean, I, I think I was listening to some show. I, I don't know where, but I was listening to it. I heard that GameStop's, GameStop's stock was soaring. When I heard that, I thought, What? Is this bizarre world? How in the world is GameStop's stock soaring? That's like blockbuster stock soaring, right? It's like that, that is like going downhill. There's no one is shopping there anymore. Do you remember hearing that story? I do. And it just like made me smile because I used to, I never upgraded growing up. I got like a original Nintendo, not super Nintendo, not anything like original Nintendo when I was like in grade okay. school. And yes. I never upgraded. So my entire childhood, like I only played, you know, Mario 1, Mario 2. And right, right. you could go to GameStop. By the time I was like in high school, you could go to GameStop and get Nintendo games for like 50 cents. And right. it was great. Like we would go there and just you could trade in games, you get new games. But to be honest with you, I didn't even know it still existed as a company. <laughs> I know, and I know. Like let alone publicly traded company. Yeah. So when I go to get my hair cut at Sports Clips, my favorite place to get my hair cut, uh, the, <laughs> the, the shop right next to Sports Clips is GameStop. And so we always park in GameStop's parking lot because no one else is there. But I, that, that aside, uh, obviously this dealt with short selling, hedge fund managers, the stock market. It, it, it's a world of confusion. And so I've done a lot of research. I know you have done a lot of research. Do you want to attempt to explain what happened, why GameStop was in the news? Uh, and maybe we can both find a way to understand what actually happened. Because I did my research at about 5 a.m. So I, I'm not sure it's all there, but uh, do you want to take a first shot at this? Okay, get ready. This is um, not an expert take, but my understanding is that... There's this thing you can do called shorting right. stock. And basically what it is is betting against the company. So normally when you invest in a company, you purchase stock and you hope that the value of that stock goes up so that right. you can buy low, sell high, make some money passively the and way. move the on with your dream. life. Right. Exactly. Right. So when you short a stock, you it's basically the inverse. So you make money if the stock goes down somehow, yes. I don't really understand how. And <sighs> if the stock goes up, you have to pay money. So, like, normally when you invest, you know, you don't have to affirmatively pay. You just would lose – if the stock goes down, you would lose the money that you invested. But when right. you're shorting, because it's reversed, you actually have to pay if the stock goes up. Um, so let me you don't understand the mechanism right. of how that works, but apparently that's how it works. You are absolutely right. Let me give a little bit more detail because I really struggled with what you just said. There's so many loopholes there, and I know some <laughs> of our listeners also are like, I, I hear the story. I kind of know how people were screwed, and that's a good thing or a bad thing, but the mechanics of it. So th this, these are the mechanics of it. Okay, so there's a stock, like you said, that you think is going to go down, like GameStop, like Blockbuster, like BlackBerry, AMC. These are businesses that we always say are on the downward trend, right? So they're, they're going down. Well, here's what you do. You uh, borrow stocks. Now, I had no idea that was even a thing, but you actually can borrow stocks from someone who holds those stocks. And so they lend those stocks to you and you got to pay it back within a certain period of time. Let's say it's 30 days. Let's say it's six months, whatever. It's a set period of time, like a loan. You got to pay it back with interest, the, the stock. Okay, mm -hmm. so you borrow that stock, and here's what you do. You sell that stock right away to someone. Let's say the value is $100. Okay, so I borrow the stock. I, I sell it then at $100 because I think 
the price is going to go down. All right. So let's say the price then does go down to $50. All right. Well, uh, I then, I now, I buy it back at $50. Uh, so I sold it at 100 I buy it back at 50 I made that $50. And then I give that stock back to the, the person I borrowed it from, and I made my $50. So that's how the mechanism actually works. But as you pointed out, there's a lot of danger because that stock could go up. And McKenzie, this is why it's very dangerous. Let's say you bought a stock in, in a company. Let's say you paid $100. How much money are you risking on that investment? $100 normally. Exactly, right? right? That's it. It's capped out. It's not 101. It's not 102. It's not 50. You are, are risking $100. All right, so it's a set amount. But if you do the short sell, do you know how much you're risking? Well, potentially as far Anything. It's undefined. Infinity. Yeah. There, there's no cap on it. Let's say that because you have to buy that stock back at the end of the day. So let's say you you uh, you buy that stock at uh, you borrow it at a hundred. You sell it at a hundred. Now that stock goes up to ten million dollars. Just as an example, right? You have to buy that stock back at $10 million because you have to give it back to the person you borrowed it from at the end of that time. So it's very risky. You now are not just risking your $100 investment. It's an infinite, an infinity amount, uh, in, infinite amount of money that you are risking. So that's how short selling works. Now, McKinsey, here is the nefarious part of this deal. All right, so you think, well, Joel, that all makes sense, but how, how is this nefarious? Where is the, the bad act, if you will? It is... A, 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 an idea out there that these hedge fund managers, these people who are doing these borrowing and these short selling, they are creating their own panic because when they start selling a lot of these stocks, so they borrow them and they sell a lot of them, it creates panic in the marketplace. And so it drives the price down. So their actions are actually driving the price down. They are creating their own panic. Do you see how that could be nefarious? Yes, I do. All right, so here is where the fun part comes in. Where I just told the story to my wife, and she just loved it. So here's where the, the fun part comes in. So the, that's what these hedge fund managers did, right? They they borrowed these stocks, they uh, then sold them, and they think, well, the price is going to go down. We're actually maybe creating that little panic. Well, a bunch of amateur investors got together on Reddit, and apparently there is this internet community where they all talk to one another, and they said, you know what, let's do, we know this is going on, we, there are indications where we can figure out, oh, these guys are short selling over here, let's beat them at their own game. So they bought up the shares in GameStop, and they all did it uh, in, in mass, and it upped the value to, I think, $450, I think it went up to. It was some uh, crazy it, amount. Yeah, crazy amount. They're all like, oh, everyone's buying GameStop. Maybe GameStop has come up with a new Game Boy. We don't know. There's obviously a lot going on here. And so here's the other reality. So the, the price starts going up. Now these hedge fund managers, they start to panic because they know, oh, my goodness, my risk here is infinite. I better buy these now and cut my losses while I can. So then they bought it back. Now, let's just say $200, $300, because they wanted to cut their losses. So they borrowed it. They sold it at $100. They bought it back at $400. They lost $300 per share. And that's where the controversy comes in. And a lot of people are saying, Sweet. These guys had it coming. They they engage in short selling to kind of, you know, uh, create this panic so they can make a bunch of money. And yeah, they got burned. And so yeah. what, what, what is your take on that? You know, <laughs> my take on it is how is when I, I'm reading, I mean, I knew of short selling to begin with. Like I lived through 2008, 2009, like everyone okay. else. And, you know, you learn a little bit about how the markets work. But I just, you know. To me, it's there's something inherently wrong about people being allowed to bet against companies. Like I have no problem, <laughs> right. and I'm not an economist, so my understanding of these issues is very superficial. And I wish, you know, I wish it was deeper. And you know, I try to educate myself as things come up like this. But it just seems to me that I don't, I don't really have a problem with obsolete companies failing. I mean, that's part of, you know, how the market right. works and how the economy moves forward and progresses. You don't want, you know, anyone to be propping up failing companies past a certain point, but to, to actively bet against them and, and make money against them just doesn't seem right to me. And I feel like 
you know, there are these <laughs> like shadowy figures out there, these hedge fund managers or whatever, who always think they're smarter and right. than everyone else. And I'm going to find out this new way to make so much money by betting against people. And I'm going to call it collateral, collateralized debt obligations and short selling and a short squeeze and this and that. And right. it just, it always like, do, do, have they not lived through? I mean, it always ends badly ultimately. I mean, I guess yes. there are a lot of people who make a lot of money before it ends badly. So they're, you know, the natural human tendency is to be like, well, I'm going to get out before this goes right. bad. But I but feel like it, if you're thinking like, well, I'm going to get out before this goes bad and hurts a lot of people, it's something that you shouldn't be doing. <laughs> yes, exactly. Here's the problem. From a legal standpoint, which is our spin here as lawyers, this is going to be problematic here. Now, uh, I, I think the, the hedge fund manager's actions of trying to drive the price down by creating panic also is bad. But you just don't want to hurt the innocent investor. And here, let's say people were buying the shares as the price was artificially going up. So they bought at, at 200, 300, 400. Someone was buying these shares at $450 a, a share. They lost their shirt. Now, if it's the hedge fund manager, maybe we don't care. Maybe you do care. I don't know. But let's say it's just your average investor. And now they lost that investment because it, it, that's overvalued. It, it's worth whatever, $75 a share. I'm just making it up. But you know, the, the value is a lot less as far as how profitable this company is, what their future looks like. That's the actual value, not this inflated value caused by people who coordinated buying a bunch of stock to drive the price up. And so people got burned. I mean, if you bought it, at, now if you bought it at 100 and sold at 450, yes, you made out. But what about the person who bought at 450 and had to sell at 100? That person lost their shirt, and that creates a lot of uncertainty in the marketplace. And that's why the Securities and Exchange Commission comes down so harshly on these fraudulent attempts to prop up the market or to um, you know, bring down the market. I'm just wondering. What's going to be the legal consequence here if people actually coordinated their efforts to drive this price up artificially, knowing it was going to hurt people and cost them money? Is that a violation of the law? Yeah, and I, I hear you, and I think that that's, you know, I don't know the answer to that, but I also think, you know, maybe they know what they're doing and they know whether it's legal or not but the the broader point is and my understanding is that these this reddit community didn't do this necessarily to primarily to put money in their own pockets they kind of did it to draw attention to the fact that like you know there are people out there all the time manipulating the markets and yes. that's what happened 12 years ago and just because, like, when a huge bank does it and then they lose billions and billions of dollars, they are big and powerful enough for the government to come in and bail them out, literally. But then when, you know, a group of average Joes does it, well, then, you know, the SEC is investigating them. And I think people are, you know, it's just drawing attention, whether you fully understand what exactly happened or not, like me, it's just drawing attention to the fact that, like, you know, there are, first of all, A, the market is kind of untethered to reality and has been for some time and isn't a reflection of what's actually going on in our economy. And B, there are different sets of rules depending on how rich and powerful you are. And that's kind of, you know, axiomatic at this point, right, but it right. really draws attention to like specifically, well, we can do the same exact thing that these big, huge banks did and gamble and lose. And the right. consequences are very different depending well, on who you are and how much money you have. And I think people are just, you know, there's, there's sick and tired of that trope, like over and over seeing that play out. Well, we are going to have to keep a watch on this because it would be fascinating to me to see how, the enforcement officials, uh, you know, the Security Exchange Commission, how they respond to this because it, it could be problematic. They could just be simply trying to make a point. And so we'll be watching this closely. All right. Also in the news, the Supreme Court and you got a change of administration. That means you have a change at the guard at the Solicitor General's position. Now, for those of you listeners who don't know what the solicitor, who the Solicitor General is, that is the lawyer for the federal government. So the federal government obviously has a lot of laws that they are interested in. I know that's an understatement of the day, but uh, when those laws are being argued and challenged in court, 
the federal government, well, they can defend their laws. And so that is what the Solicitor General does. Here's the problem with the Solicitor General. Sometimes administrations change, and so their positions on these laws also change. And so that was in the news this week. So, Mackenzie, what is your take on the change of uh, the Solicitor General, especially as it relates to certain high-profile cases? Yeah, I mean, it's really interesting because typically, you know, I think it this highlights some of the problems that are inherent when, you know, Congress is essentially broken and is not, you know, making policy and making law and that process is broken. And so the administration, one after another, increasingly relies on the federal judiciary to kind of make policy and repeal policy. And what happens when you when you rely on that is there's no stability in the law. So typically when there's a change of administration and a change of party and policy, you know, with cases that have been pending and are already, you know, briefed and argued, the administration doesn't go back to the Supreme Court and say, yeah, you know what, never mind, we're not defending that law anymore. Um, right, right. You know, we, we changed our mind because now we have a Democrat and not a Republican or vice versa. However, with the past administration, you know, they, the Trump administration didn't defend some laws right. that the Obama administration passed, um, most notably the Affordable Care Act, and instead went to court you know, saying, oh, you should strike down this entire law. So the normal, the like constitutional way of doing that would be, well, Congress should repeal and replace the law. And that is a democratic process. And then, you know, the president would sign whatever new law. Well, obviously, as we all remember, that was not successful. So the next step was to bring this lawsuit, California versus Texas, actually a series of lawsuits culminating in California versus Texas, to the Supreme Court and tell the court, well, you know, this law that the previous administration passed is actually unconstitutional and we want you to strike down the entire thing. And, you know, it's just a mess now because now we have a new president who was the vice president when this law was originally passed and his acting solicitor general is now in a position to have to decide, well, you know, in this California versus Texas case, it's been briefed. It's been argued. We talked about the argument on the podcast and, you know, it's, submitted for the court's consideration and they'll be making a decision on that case. But should we go back to the court and say, um, you know, remember that case? We are, we're changing our mind again. Like it's a very awkward position for the administration to be in. And, you know, I don't really know what you do in that situation. So here's where it really gets problematic. And that is this, when when a certain governmental entity, whether it be the state government or the federal government, it can happen on both planes, when the government passes a law, so it goes through the, the normal channels, both houses of Congress, the president signs it, it is now the law. The There is a problem when future administrations don't enforce that law. And they just say, you know what, on our own, we're going to decide we don't like this law. We want to undercut it in our own way. That's problematic. And that's where the problem comes in. For example, this actually did occur uh, several years ago when it came to the Defense of Marriage Act and the various laws that uh, regarding marriage between one man and one woman, should you allow for same-sex marriage, a certain governmental entity would pass a law on that. And then future administrations would say, we disagree with that position. We're going to undercut this same law. And that that's problematic from the public's perspective. Because like, wait a second, the law was passed. How can you now, as just the president, undo that law that was that was fully passed by by Congress? Now, this is playing out right now when it comes to, as you said, um, uh, California v. Texas involving the the Affordable Care Act is the fact that there is now no tax in the law. Does this mean the entire law is unconstitutional? Uh, you know, there is no mandate. Is that, is that problematic for the whole law or is it severable? Well, those arguments have already been made to the Supreme Court. It's already pending. And now will the next administration, the Biden administration, change its position? And how will that play out? I don't know, but but we will be following that. It is a very interesting uh, phenomenon when you have a change of administrations. Will they also change their positions on cases previously argued? 
I think it's just, you know, another symptom of what happens when you have these wild pendulum swings back and forth. And, you know, we can all, it's kind of like a problem of externalities, kind of like with the the GameStop thing. Like we can all see what's happening. We can all take a step back and see like, well, this isn't good. You know, we're swinging wild, but it's like, we're unable to stop it. You know, like we're all watching it happen in slow motion, but we can't stop it. And that's what the problem is. It's like, we, we need to find a way to like pump the brakes right, right. a little bit and figure out, you know, how to move forward in everyone's best interests. But, um, it's, it's really difficult to do that when you have, when you, when you, you know, it's like, uh, you're married, I'm married. It's like when you, like people say in marriage counseling or whatever, like, do you want to be right? Or do you want to be married? Like sometimes (laughs) you have to like give a little and compromise. And it's like, we're both political parties right now just want to be right. And are so convinced that they are right. It's like, you guys are headed for divorce. Like any of us who've been through it can see it coming from a million miles away. Like, do you want to be right? Or do you want the government to work? Cause they're two different choices. Like you can't have both. So I cannot think of a better segue for our next topic than what you just (laughs) did. We're going to talk about the filibuster and the filibuster. It's obviously in the news now, the change of administration and the thought behind the filibuster is, can't we just find middle ground to, to move forward on? And, and that's kind of the whole reason why you have this filibuster, but there's this idea that right now these parties are are so oppositional. It's like, we got to hate everything you do, whatever Trump said, whatever he supported, not only do we hate that idea, no matter how good it might be, we, but, but since Trump came up with it, now those who worked in the Trump administration are unemployable. We, we, they, they don't even deserve a place in the public uh, marketplace. That's the kind of animosity now we hold for the opposition party. And I'm sure it cuts the other way as well, though I'm not coming up with examples right now uh, <laughs> of that. But can we just get along? Now, again, that leads us to the filibuster. Um Oh my god. You know, I, I've done some research on the filibuster. Do you know when the filibuster started? I don't, but I imagine it was quite a while ago. Let's talk a little bit about oh, first of all, what is you I want you to set up a current issue with the filibuster, and then I want to go back into history. So what what is the issue now with the filibuster? Well, it's basically where the minority party in Congress can effectively kill legislation by, you know, endlessly debating it. And right. not being able to, you know, you can override, I guess, a filibuster, but you need with a, a certain, closure vote with a closure vote. And but you need, you know, a certain number of 60 percent. Right. So six out of 10, um, you need a 60 percent vote to to uh, bring closure and, and actually have a vote on to end debate on a matter. Right. And when the government is so divided and so closely divided, so close to 50 50, like that can never happen, basically. So what's the benefit of the filibuster rule today as you see it? Well, I think it would prevent, you know, I my understanding is that it was designed and intended to prevent like a tyranny of the majority. Right. And it, so it, it gives the minority pow- minority party some power to, you know, shut down legislation that doesn't have kind of a, a more than 50 percent support. Right. It basically requires both sides. Hey, guys. Let's come together. Let's figure out uh, a good middle ground here that both sides can agree on. So right now, that's kind of the idea behind it. In other words, you need 60 percent to um, uh, to to in debate and to call something for for a vote. And so the on the other side, since we do have this phenomenon of everyone is opposing each other, I got to oppose you no matter what, no matter how good of an idea you might have. I don't like the the R or D after your name, and so I'm going to oppose what you say. That's that's the climate in which we live now. And, and so the thought is, requiring 60% really doesn't mean the incoming administration can't do anything. They can't pursue their agenda. I mean, elections have consequences. We do believe that. So if you were just voted into office, you should be allowed to pursue your agenda. I mean, you were just, you did just win an election. Uh, and so I do see how it kind of is frustrating, but then also serves a benefit. All right, let's go back in history. Back in 1850, uh, well, first of all, it was not, it's not in the Constitution. We, we all can agree with that, right? The, right? the idea of the filibuster is not in the U.S. Constitution. It's like it an just internal kinda, operating procedure. 
Right, of the, the, the Senate. And so it's uh, something that they do that they, uh, and here's what was the idea behind it. When you have debate, you should allow endless debate on the Senate floor because that is the most learned body. It's the, you know, whatever, is the body, a deliberative body where they're going to debate things. And if as long as there's something to be said about a matter, you should be allowed to say it. That was the idea behind um, the Senate and the filibuster in 1850 when it came to be. So in other words, McKinsey, here's the critical thing I want you to recognize. You actually had to debate. That was the point of the filibuster. There was someone standing up there at the lectern, you know, before Nancy Pelosi was taken away. It was There was a lectern there, and, and someone was talking nonstop, endlessly. So as long as you were debating, you could go on. And, and, and the idea was we're not going to stop this as long as you you are you are talking as long as you have something to say. Does that make sense to you? I mean, yeah, it did. like originally it makes sense, but yeah. I think now it's usually used like people just read you know the Papa John's menu up there. No, like, no, it's, no, it's even worse. It's even worse than that. In 1970, they changed the procedure. Uh, so by the way, let's go back to in history. So you could stop it. You could say, hey, look, we know you have something to say. We're going to stop that. You're, you're talking about it right now because we want to move on. We are going to take a closure vote. And so hey, we got 60. percent It used to actually be three fifths, but whatever, or, or two thirds. Uh, but we're going to stop the vote right now and um uh and, and we got we got our 60 percent uh, and we're gonna we're gonna move forward so they would actually stop the debate and, and then by, even in 1964 when it came to the civil rights act there was a, a filibuster attempt but it was shut down because they got the requisite number of votes to, to shut that down uh and so in 1970 they decided you know what this is problematic we kind of like the filibuster it, it does serve some good but we don't like shutting down the government so here's what we're gonna do we're gonna have Two systems going on at the same time. So we can still engage in Senate business on one track while the filibuster is going on on the other track. No, by the way, you don't actually have to be on the floor debating because we're we're debating these other things. We're doing Senate business. So now all you got to do is claim filibuster and boom, you can can go ahead and um, keep the debate going. My suggestion is let's bring back the filibuster as it was originally intended, get on the Senate floor and debate this topic until you have nothing else to say. And then once you have nothing else to say, let's take a vote and and move forward. But I don't like the idea that people can just claim filibuster and then shut the whole thing down. The, the, The purpose of the filibuster was to allow for everyone to have a say. And as long as you had something to say about a matter, you should be able to, you should be able, on the floor speaking your piece. Uh, do you think the current form of the filibuster is kind of nonsensical? We you just claim filibuster and then move on with other business? No, I mean, I didn't even know about the two tracks thing. I thought that was like the whole point of people staying up all night talking on the floor. Right. And, you know, th- that it, in my mind, if you filibuster, so the minority party says we're going to filibuster this bill because it's so, you know, tyrannical and only represents the one side and say, you know, you have a 52-person majority or a 52-person, yeah, majority party in the Senate, like, you're really disregarding what, you know, 48 other people want or other, you know. Right members want. And so the idea would be we're going to filibuster until you kind of throw us a bone. We can maybe rework the legislation a little bit and compromise and you can put some some of the provisions in that we wanted or take something out that we don't want. And then everyone will say, okay, now we're not going to filibuster you anymore and we can pass this. Like that would be. Yeah, that's, how not, how, be. that's not what they do. I know. And it just makes no sense. To, I mean, things have become so warped to where like it's not. This is why people think that their government's broken because it literally is like it's gotten so out of hand. So the original purpose of the filibuster was to say, you know what? We should allow everyone to speak their piece uh, on the Senate floor and let's debate this until we are done debating. That was the original purpose. Uh, And now it's just become a minority veto, which is nowhere in the Constitution. Uh, Does it maybe encourage both sides to come to the bargaining table? Maybe. Uh, I I like that idea if that's what both sides would do. But nonetheless, it definitely has morphed in in purpose. And now it's just simply a minority veto when it started out as being let's let everyone uh, fully speak their minds before we take a vote on this matter. So. Uh, you know, we'll have to wait and see what the what the um, Senate does with the filibuster. I do fear that once it's gone, 
It's gone. Now, maybe it's time has come. I'm not sure I actually would be opposed to getting rid of the filibuster. I'm kind of on the fence here. I don't mind it the way it used to be. So let's have debate and speak ad nauseum. And then once you're done speaking, let's go ahead and take a vote. So I, I don't even know how where I fall now on, on the filibuster. I, I do think it's scary. Um, once we, when any, any final thoughts on the filibuster before we move on to the next hot button topic? I mean, I'm not, I would be interested to see how things work without it. And I think, you know, we're already halfway there, right? Like we're already, maybe not halfway, but it's already been eliminated when it comes to judicial nominees. And, you know, it does make things more partisan and the votes used to be, the confirmation votes used to be 97 to three, a hundred to zero, and they're not anymore. And so it does allow for that. But I think, you know, it's also, there are nominees that are being voted on confirmed, unlike, you know, your typical legislation, which is everything's just stalled out for years and years and years at this point. So, you know, it's, it, there's definitely pros and cons, but I think, you know, something has to happen and I'm not, I'm not terrified about it. Here's another thought. The purpose of the filibuster was to allow everyone to speak their piece on, on a bill. All right. So if you, let's say get rid of the filibuster, is it not possible then that the one side can really limit who can speak on a bill and kind of shut down the opposition so they can, now that would really cut against the original purpose of the filibuster, which is to allow the Senate to be a place where everyone can speak their piece and be heard uh, on a matter. If you get rid of the filibuster, then would you then give the other side the power to kind of shut down and limit what you can say in opposition to a bill? I mean, theoretically, yes. And that's another example of how we're all kind of like watching this runaway train and everyone says, oh, this is bad. Like, we're too divided and this is bad and we got to come together. But like, no one's walking the walk, it seems. All right. Well, so speaking we'll of runaway trains, I, I'm glad you mentioned that because that leads us right into our next topic. You're doing a great job on your segues today, Mackenzie. But <laughs> Supreme Court reform. You know, hey, if we're going to get rid of the filibuster, the next thought of our traditions that we want to get rid of will be the Supreme Court, uh, the way it's currently set up. Now, I think this is extremely dangerous, but let's just, for our listeners, set out what the current situation is with the Supreme Court. We have nine Supreme Court justices. We have had nine Supreme Court justices since, I believe, 1879. I think the Judiciary Act of 1879, it might be off of by a couple of years, it might be 69. Uh, I get those kind of mixed up. But since then, it has been nine, and it's kind of a sacred cow. But, McKenzie, you know this, and I assume most of our listeners know this, that number is not set in the United States Constitution. The United States Constitution just says there will be one Supreme Court. That's it. Uh, and, and as many inferior courts as Congress shall establish. And so there is no set number. You can have one. You can have a thousand. It, it does not matter. I, I did this recent show uh, or class on the uh, Socrates trial. And I learned that in, in the trial of Socrates, they had 500 judges or, or you know, 500 jurors. So maybe, that, maybe that's too many. That seems but, unwieldy. Um, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, the, the number isn't set in the Constitution. It has been nine. It, it's been five. Uh, it, it's been, uh, I think, as high as 15 at one point in time. Well, what are your thoughts on, on Supreme Court reform? Well, I mean, my understanding of what's going on is that the Biden administration is assembling what they call and I understand to be a bipartisan commission to (laughs) review not only the Supreme Court, but the entire federal judiciary, all of the articles. I have have my BS buzzer here. I'm buzzing my BS buzzer on that uh, bipartisan nature. But nonetheless, I just want to let you know that the buzzer is going off, but I want you to continue. Yes, I say wait and see because nothing has actually happened yet. I think a couple members have been, you know, appointed, but, you know, it's not like the commission is fully formed and doing its thing yet. So, you know, they're they're reviewing all kinds of issues with respect to Article three courts, including, you know, yes, the number of justices on the Supreme Court, but also, you know, uh, terms and term limits and age limits and qualification limits and, you know, things like that. So I think it's not a bad idea periodically to kind of say like, hey, let's review how things are working and what's not working and maybe modernize and see if we can streamline some things. So, you know, I know that from your side of the aisle, it's alarming when you hear during a campaign, you know, 
people talking about court packing and things like that. And we, we've talked about it before and I, I've expressed too, like, I don't think it's a good idea. I don't want, you know, this administration to pack the court, but I also feel like, you know, from my side of the aisle, it's alarming when you've just lived through four years of, and I'm not talking about Supreme Court nominees at this point, but um, when you've lived through four years of, of judicial nominees who are rated unqualified being confirmed and put on the federal federal judiciary, like that's alarming. And what happened with Merrick Garland was alarming. So I think there's cause for alarm on both sides and, and probably rightfully so, So we'll just have to wait and see. I think it's going to be one of those, my prediction would be it's going to be one of those situations where there's a lot of hand wringing and a lot of alarm. And then at the end of the day, the actual changes, if any, will be modest. I I truly believe that. Here's my take. Now, I know I was calling BS on this bipartisan nature because who is selecting this, this bipartisan commission? It's going to be the Democrats. I, I, at a surface level, I doubt how bipartisan this is going to be. But I will give you some credit here because I do think Biden's objective here is they're not going to pack the Supreme Court. I mean, I know people are talking about it, but they just you can't go down that road. If they go down that road, that will destroy the Supreme Court as an independent judiciary. It just will. Because here's here's what's going to happen. If Now, every time that some party is in power, so they have the presidency and they have Congress and they have the Senate, things like that, whenever that happens, they're going to change the number of the Supreme Court justices. It's just a never-ending cycle. And it's so obvious to see that surely everyone sees it. I mean, it's not like they're going to say right now, oh, let's change the number to 15 under this current administration and then we'll be good. We'll just stop it right there and we'll we'll say it can no longer be changed above 15. The Republicans will say, no, you can't do that during your administration because when we get in power, we're going to then up it to 21 and say, that's final. I mean, that's, once you start that, go down that road, it's a never-ending cycle. You have a, you have a Supreme Court of Again, 500 uh, justices. And so I do think that is extremely dangerous. I think Biden recognized that's a problem. And so I, that's why he might want a bipartisan commission so that he can get some support for the position of we can't destroy the independence of the judiciary. That's just not something that can be done. All right. So that's that. Now, you mentioned some other topics that they are going to review, which I find interesting. You mentioned term limits for justices. Uh, I think you mentioned um, qualifications for for justices. Now, let's talk about those because some of those would require a constitutional amendment and some of them might not require a constitutional amendment. I believe if you're going to talk about the qualifications of the Supreme Court justice and if you're going to talk about the, uh, so that's going to require a constitutional amendment. You, you would agree with that, right? Yes. Okay, because that's that's kind of set in the Constitution that you're going to have a Supreme Court. Actually, what it doesn't. What does it say in the Supreme in the Constitution? It just says lifetime. It says lifetime tenure, right? And is that it? Well, we might have to look this up here. I think it just says they shall serve. By the way, it does not say lifetime tenure. I, I, you were not paying attention during my class. I'm, I'm frustrated by that. But the, um, do you realize it does not say lifetime in the Constitution? Well, does it, does it, wait a minute. It says for life, right? No, it does not. It says as long as they, during um, good behavior. Good behavior, exactly. As hmm. long as they're not misbehaving, they can hold their job. But once they start misbehaving, they're going to yank them out of there. Uh, and so, yeah. Shall it never, hold their offices during good behavior. And that goes right. for all the entire federal judiciary, not just the Supreme Court. Right. So when it comes to the term limits, they, they can't do that on their own. They're going to have to get a constitutional amendment to change the term mm-hmm. limits. But does the Constitution speak about the qualifications of who sits as a as a judge or justice? It, no, it says the judicial power of the United States shall be vested in one Supreme Court and in such inferior courts as the Congress may from time to time ordain and establish. Uh, well, it, the judges, both of the Supreme Inferior Courts, shall hold their offices during good behavior and basically shall get paid. So, it, I mean, it does it would be in the say section, Congress though, can ordain and establish the Inferior Courts. There you go. I don't think that Congress can change 
um, the qualifications of who can be a, a, a judge or a justice. Well, I think it says that the president can appoint. And yes, advice and consent by the Senate. So I guess the Senate can say, look, we're not going to confirm anyone who doesn't meet these qualifications. So I guess they could do that. But the president can still appoint them. And then it would be up to the Senate to say, we are going to either say yay or nay. So I guess they had advice and consent. Does that allow Congress beforehand to set the uh, the standards for who can become a judge? I guess in one sense it, it does they, they, if they have advice and consent, but it would just be a rule that would apply to them. I right. would say it could always go the other way uh, in a given situation. And so interesting. It is interesting. And I will, you know, we'll just, I think this is going to be one of those things that like everyone gets worked up about right now and it takes three years and, you know, the changes are modest. That's just my feeling. Um, But we'll, we'll see where it is a very interesting question. And, you know, I guess if there's no set number of justices, they could just change it to make it just me. I I could just, well, well, then they couldn't do that. Why? They, <laughs> well, oh, because they'd have to fire life all the, tenure. <laughs> yeah, they'd have to. They, you would have to at least <laughs> share office space with the other nine until five years pass. They get too old and, and move on because you know they, they all are up there in age. You would have a lot, lot many more years to serve, uh, and so uh, not a bad idea. Yeah, I alone can fix it. I'm just saying. I'm just saying. I, I would I would support that. So that when it comes to Supreme Court reform, of course, we're going to be watching that uh, to see what they try to do. I'm fascinated by I am very nervous if they try to pack the court. Uh, that is going to be scary. But all these other changes, hey, I, I'm all for. And they might be creative in how they do it. I think we just uncovered a way that they could uh, put some qualifications in there for future judges and justices uh, by creating their own Senate rules on how they give advice and consent. That's something they would control. So, hey, Supreme Court Commission, uh, give us a call. Yeah. We can help you out. <laughs> We've already done some analysis along this line, and we can help you out. All right. Lastly here, let's talk about what is the Supreme Court doing? They, it's kind of a downtime uh, you know, during this, this period of time. But they did have a couple of interesting cases this week that they dealt with. Uh, why don't you go ahead and mention the one involving the draft? Yeah, so I think they're probably mostly just like watching playoff football and talking about that. But in their— As they should. As they should. On their working time, yeah, there are a couple interesting cert petitions that were filed this week, which um, are petitions, you know, to have a case heard that— Justices haven't decided whether to take the case or not, but there's one that's challenging the mail-only draft, which would be a pretty big deal because it's always been mail-only. And I think the the argument in that petition is, you know, back in the 1970s or 80s, I think there was a challenge to the mail-only draft, and it was upheld, and the rationale of the court at that time was that— the military prohibited women from participating in like active combat. And I'm probably using the wrong military terminology, but, um, and that was within the purview of the military and, you know, the court was not going to try to make military decisions. And so they respected that and said, you know, that that was a basis for upholding the draft being male only. But now that policy of the military was, you know, it was discarded in, I think, you know, within the past 10 years, maybe 2013, 2014, and women are permitted uh, to engage in active combat now. And so this group, this interest group, um, is basically saying, well, now the rationale for... Now, what interest group is this? Is this a a women's rights kind of group? I think it's or a men's would this rights be group, a, actually. That's, that's what I'm saying. Who's bringing this lawsuit? Is this something that women's rights groups would want? Um, I don't know. I'm, I'm asking. I really don't have a, I, I have no idea. I can speak on behalf of all women's rights groups, but, you know, I mean, I understand the discrimination argument. Like there, you know, there's intermediate scrutiny, I imagine, would apply. And it's definitely facially discriminatory. Like it's facially says men only. And so I I do understand that that argument certainly has teeth. And I don't know, you know, from a certain standpoint, it's like kind of moot because, you know, the draft hasn't been invoked in the past 50 years and there's no real 
like anticipation that it's going to be invoked at, at any time, I, I wouldn't see why not. I mean, maybe it's easy for me to say because I'm about, I'm like aged out of like having to <laughs> right, worry about right, that. Right. But I don't see why. Well, let me throw one reason out there. Again, I am just playing lawyer on the spot here. And and so I'm not saying that I believe what I'm about to say. I'm just playing lawyer here. Okay. <laughs> you, got, you got that? I like the disclaimer. Yeah. I, I don't want you to say I'm sexist afterwards because I'm just really putting on my lawyer's hat here. All right. So here's the argument that, that could be made. Uh, you you have a household, you have kids who need to be raised, and, and so you got a mother and you got a father uh, in, in in most situations, right? That are responsible uh, for that kid, uh, and so. I know in some situations you have a mother and a mother and a father and a father, but I'm, I'm just saying in the scenarios you have a mother and you have a father, and then you, you're raising kids. And so if you have a a uh, a draft, well, are you going to want to take both a mother and father away from the kids? Well, then who's going to raise the kids? Okay, well they say no, we'll just let one of them opt out. Okay, well then. Who decides who gets to opt out? Doesn't the military get a voice, a say in whether or not they want the male or the female to be subject to the automatic draft? Uh, I mean, is that is that is that something that the military can decide, or is that something that the family can say for us? We would rather send the mom, and we're going to keep the dad. I mean, how would that play out in that scenario? Well, no, and I think as you point out, that's already an issue, right? So, like, if if say the draft is as it is right now, male only, and you have to register for the selective service when you turn 18, and you have a household with kids that's a father and a father, you know, theoretically, both of them could get drafted right now, and I think that's already an issue, probably for fewer households, or definitely for fewer households than it would be if you were drafting everyone regardless of gender, but, you know, I think that's already an issue, and I think that the government would have to find a but way. But would you agree that's a lot minor of an issue because most of the time you're going to have a female involved. And I do think it, there obviously are cases out there where you have a male and a male and no female because of adoption. I, I get that. But the, we're, we're talking about the vast majority of numbers, so policy for the United States. Uh, then um, wouldn't you say that uh, the government, the military, is in a better position to choose whether or not they want to accept the male over the female or, or vice versa? Isn't that, isn't that a decision that the military should make? Yeah, I think so. And I think, you know, in, in any situation where the government is requiring the parents in a family that the the legal guardians of children to be somewhere other than in the home taking care of the children, that's an administrative issue that the government has to work out. So, for example, when you had Joe and Teresa Judice from the Real Housewives of New Jersey get convicted of tax fraud and they both got <laughs> sentenced to jail, they had okay. minor children in the household and the judge in sentencing in that case deferred the sentence of the wife. So the husband served okay. his sentence first and then, or maybe it was the other way around. Either way, one of them served their sentence first. And then when that one got out of jail and went back home to be with the kids, the other one served their sentence. So I don't see why in the draft you couldn't do the same thing, right? Like presumably, I mean, we have 350 million people in this country. I would hope that we're not drafting all adults of a certain age at the right, same time. Right. I mean, if that's the situation, we're really in trouble, right? So you would f figure out how to work the lottery so that only one legal guardian from a household at a time could be on active duty. That's how, I mean, I, I'm glad I'm not the person who has to work out the logistics of that, but I feel like there's a way to do it in a non-discriminatory Fashion. Kenzie, I, I, I'm just so impressed. I can't even concentrate. I'm so impressed on how you were able to squeeze in Real Housewives of Beverly Hills into today's podcast. Kudos to you. I was wondering when you are going to get that reference in there, but you nailed it. Great job on that. So, yeah, that, that's obviously a very interesting case, and it does seem to be a case taken out of context, out of time, because we don't have a draft. We haven't had done the draft since, I'm just guessing, the Vietnam War. I think that's uh, right. It definitely is it's not been during my lifetime. I was wondering in the 1990s, were they going to do a draft with the um, the Iraq invasion? Because then I was of age. I would have been drafted. Uh, but, hey, you know what? That's um, uh, be interesting to see it. The court takes up that case. It might have ramifications in other areas of the law. Well, the last case that I, I kind of followed this week involved, I believe it's Massachusetts versus New Hampshire, which as on a procedural level is interesting because it's one state 
against another state. So you can file that at the Supreme Court, but there are some procedural hurdles in this case. It might take a while before it gets to the Supreme Court. But this is an issue that's going to involve a lot of Americans. It's this. Can, because we, you know, during this pandemic, we're all working from home. Most of us are working from home. And some of us are working in states other than where we used to work, right? We used to, let's just say, cross state lines and go to the bit, the office in, let's just say, Massachusetts. And now we are working from home. We are never even crossing state lines. So can Massachusetts require you to pay income tax to that state. When you don't work in that state, you work from New Hampshire, yes, your business is located across state lines, but you are no longer going over and crossing state lines. So it's a fascinating issue on taxation. And apparently several states are getting very aggressive because they're losing their tax base and losing their tax dollar. And so like, I think New York is, is requiring non-residents who don't even work in the state to pay income taxes to New York. Now, any thoughts on this? Um, this case, this matter? Yeah, I mean, I think it's an issue that was going to come to a head sooner or later, just with the, you know, everyone working remotely more and more as time goes on. And I think it's just one another situation that the pandemic has, like, really accelerated. Um, but, yeah, it's it's been an issue for a while. I mean, I used to work in Center City, Philadelphia, um, like, three days a week or four days a week and then work from home okay. one day a week when I was, you know, a young mother. And in Philadelphia, they have city wage tax. And I used to love ah. my work from home days because on those days, the hours I build, I right. would not have to pay city wage tax because I didn't go into the city. And, you know, it does create a huge problem for cities like Philadelphia, where you have a lot of people commuting from outside of the city. And, yes. you know, they haven't worked in the city in almost a year at this point. And similarly, just to my area, a lot of people live in New Jersey and work in Philadelphia, but they haven't been to Philadelphia in a long time. So it's an issue that was going to come to a head sooner or later. And, you know, I would err on this side of, you know, protecting individual workers and not forcing them to pay tax. I, I have no doubt that cities and states will find another way to tax the heck out of people, you know, right, if right. they lose a lot of tax revenue. So I would err on the side of, you know, protecting workers, not like burdening them with these taxes that under the current law, they shouldn't have to pay. I mean, if the law says you have to be inside the boundaries of a state or a city in order to have to pay taxes on the wages earned therein, then, you know, on the face of the law, you should not have to pay taxes on that. And states can whine and cry all they want, but like the, you got to find another way. And, you know, maybe the, the other right. way will be worse. So maybe there will be unintended consequences, but theoretically that's like a democratic process and the voters will have a say in how taxes well, are levied within their state. Well, let's unpack the law on this. So you have the, uh, the, from a federal law standpoint, you have the Interstate Commerce Clause and the Dormant Commerce Clause. And this really does prohibit and prevent states from reaching over state lines into another state and interfering with that state's you know, rights. And that's, that's the Interstate Commerce Clause and, and the Dormant Commerce Clause. So states can't interfere with each, with each other's business. All right. So because of that, there is this idea that the federal government can they do have a say in this matter. All right, so the law now is that a state can't require you, even if the business is located in another state, they can't require you to pay income tax in that state unless you do a significant amount of the of the work in that other state. So you just can't look at, oh, you have an address or you're incorporated in Delaware or, or something like that. No, it's where are you actually doing the bulk of your work. Now, I got to tell you, this, is, this pandemic has been kind of good for me because I used to travel all across the United States doing my classes. And you knew that. And my accountant had to pay taxes and file taxes in every single state that I appeared in. Now, that is a pain in the bazooka. I mean, that was just horrible. We, we, we'll do a class somewhere, be a small class. And I got to actually look up their laws. We got to file taxes in that state. It's just nonsense. But when you do webinars and you are actually just on the computer, I'm located in Kansas, in Kansas, I only got to pay taxes in Kansas. So do you know what that means, Mackenzie? One tax return? 
<laughs> uh, and that, and I'm moving to Florida yeah, as soon oh, as right? I can. Because if I don't have to pay state tax now because of I'm doing webinars, you better believe I, we're going to be looking as soon as our kids graduate. Okay, can we move to either Florida, Tennessee, or Texas, one of those states that does not have state income tax? I very well might be on the move. So, so there you go. Any final thoughts here? Or have we done a pretty good job debriefing this week's legal issues? Well, I don't know. You could be my neighbor soon if you move to Delaware. So... You know, I'll see you soon. Do you, you live in Delaware? No, I mean, I live, but I live very, like, 20 minutes over the border. Right, right, right. right. So what, yeah, I did not we're real- essentially neighbors. Yes, I did not realize that until one time I flew into to Philadelphia, and I was just kind of driving around in my rental car. I got on this, um, uh, the whatever bridge that goes across the river, yeah. and it's... Is not a toll road. Now, I'm sure you know this, but I'm from out. I had no idea that that was not a toll road. So I could leave the state, and I think I went into Delaware. I ended up in Delaware. I have no idea how I got there, but I ended up in <laughs> Delaware. I then came back, and to come back on that exact same bridge cost you a toll. Yes, I was like. But I don't have any money. I, I didn't have any cash. He said, we don't care. I said, well, I, I just came over here, didn't have to pay. He goes, well, no, we don't care if you leave. We just want to get you when you're coming back into the city. And so, hey, whatever. That's how I, it I, works up here. We're weird. Yes, yeah, very weird. All right. Well, thank you so much, Mackenzie. It's been a great week. And, hey, let's get together on our, our game plan for the Chiefs. Andy Reid might be calling us this, this next week. So make sure you take time out of your schedule to drop a couple of plays for Patrick Mahomes and the rest of the Kansas City Chiefs. So, all right. I'm have ready. a good week. All right. You too. All right. Bye-bye. Talk to you later. Thank you for listening to today's podcast. If you enjoyed this podcast, Please give us a five-star review. We need your love to help us continue highlighting the funnier side of the law. I want to give a special shout-out to our Vice President of Operations, Wendy Oster, without whom this entire operation would be a mess. Sean Wynn and 15.5 Features for making me sound way better than I actually do. Brooke Bolin for spreading the good word about us. And Ryan Kuhn and Paul Kuhn of Triplicity Marketing for our technical and computer support. <laughs>